Drive starts at the one. Here is the give to Dorsett. He breaks through a hole and comes out to the 10 to the 15. Looking for a little breathing room, and they get that and plenty more. He may run 99 yards. Derrick Henry still going. Here's to midfield. He's to the 40, 35, 30, 25, out of bounds. No, he didn't go out of bounds. Stays in bounds. He might go. It's a touchdown. A touchdown for Tony Dorsett. For the touchdown. The longest rush from scrimmage in the history of pro football. He ran... 99 yards. 99 yards and two feet. Unbelievable. I've kind of started a new thing uh, where I do my interviews, you know, during the week, guest dependent whenever they're available. And uh, then after I record with my guests, I have to do the other stuff that goes in the show. And for the last couple of weeks, I've been, for whatever reason, doing it at 1230, one o'clock at night when everyone's asleep uh, and just kind of coming into the, the podcast room and, um, and sitting down and doing this. And I, I was actually just in bed for the last two hours. Kind of one of those things where you lay down in bed and just kind of watching some some videos on my phone. Watching some cool shit like Bob Seger started his farewell tour the last couple of weeks. And he played a song. He's playing a song called Shame on the Moon, which is one of my favorite Seger songs. And he hasn't played it since 87. Uh, so I watched that. I also watched... Uh, a couple of videos from the Fleetwood Mac tour because they're out with Neil Finn instead of Lindsey Buckingham. And a cool thing they do is they play Don't Dream It's Over, which is a Crowded House song. Uh, and I watched that and Stevie Nicks and Neil Finn sing that together, which was pretty cool. And I watched a couple old Van Halen videos, uh, a Dreams video from 1995, the uh, the Balance tour, which I guess was the the last at the time Van Halen and Sammy Hagar tour, although they did do one in 2004. So I was just kind of watching some videos. Uh, one last thing today, I'm going to talk about going to see Rick Emmett from Triumph last Saturday, uh, play what could be his last show ever in Buffalo. Um, I have some thoughts and some feelings and some emotions about that. Uh, and we'll do that in one last thing. On the show today, uh, this is Steve Bennett, the Sportscasters, Season 8, Episode 20. And on the show today, we have two guests. Uh, Stuart Mandel from The Athletics is going to join me first. Uh, and Stuart and I are going to talk about the college football playoffs. Uh, we're going to answer questions like, why did Oklahoma get in? And Georgia didn't. We didn't spend a lot of time on that because that's just been debated so long. And then we kind of moved into the games, kind of breaking down. What does Oklahoma need to do to beat Alabama? Can Notre Dame beat Clemson? Uh, we talked a little bit about the other bowl games outside of the playoffs, so... Always great to talk with Stuart Mandel from The Athletic, and we'll do that as soon as I'm done with the intro. Uh, we'll update the book club. I actually finished reading Permanently Suspended by Anthony Cumia. I'll give you my thoughts on that and also update Mr. All Around uh, during the book club update. Uh, those are going to be the last two books of 2018. In uh, Season 9, when we start that in 2019, uh, we'll start fresh, hopefully with a couple new books. 
uh, but I'm not going to try to squeeze anything else in. I don't know how many more shows I'll do, one or two maybe, after this one. Uh, maybe one, uh, maybe two. guess it depends who I book. Uh, but I have to try. I want to try to get Anthony on, and I want to try to get David on. Uh, so if I can work those out before Christmas, I will. Um, but we'll see about schedules and things like that. Uh, also on the show today, Tim Booth, who is a writer and editor for the AP Sports in Seattle, the Associated Press. He's going to join me after the book club update to talk about uh, the Seattle hockey team that was approved this week, the 32nd team in the NHL. They're going to start in 2021. I believe when I talk to him about why they're waiting so long, uh, find out if the city is really excited for this. Is this going to work? Uh, also, we talk about Vancouver, and we do spend like 15 minutes talking Pearl Jam, uh, which was really fun. Uh, he went to three shows uh, this summer, as I did. He went to the first two home shows in Seattle, and then he went to Missoula. Uh, we talk about that. We talk about Pearl Jam a little bit. Uh, so that was really fun. You know, I always love to talk about Pearl Jam. Uh, with another super fan. So Tim Booth and I do that for a bit. Uh, I mentioned we're, we'll close the show out with one last thing. I'll tell you about Rick Emmett. I have a lot of different feelings and emotions about that. A um, couple plugs real quick. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at sports underscore casters. You can email the sportscasters at gmail.com. I also wanted to mention that I do a podcast with a friend of mine named Matthew Sobolski called the Motivation Through Music Podcast. And I kind of second mic it. And we have, we're in hiatus since about June, uh, and but we did record a new episode, which will be out uh, next week as well, uh, on the Rush album, Moving Pictures. Uh, it's kind of a fun podcast that we do. We talk about bands sometimes, like we've done a Better Than Ezra episode, which has gotten really great feedback over the last few months. We've done songs like Go Your Own Way by Fleetwood Mac, who I just mentioned. We've done Years. We did 1991. And then the, originally the podcast was a supplement to a book that Matt wrote, and the first 15 episodes or so are breaking down each chapter of that book. Um, and then since we finished the book, we've been doing the songs, albums, bands, years, themes, um, and it's back this week. You can find more about this at, at M through M Pod on Twitter. All right. Uh, I really want to spend a lot of time on one last thing today, or maybe we'll see how long, but... Um, We'll cut this short for now. Let's get to Stuart Mandel in a second. Uh, like I said, it's going to be Stuart Mandel, Book Club, Tim Booth. One last thing on saying goodbye to Rick Emmett. All right, let's do this. Let's take a break. We'll be right back with Stuart. All right, our first guest today is a longtime friend of the podcast. He's been coming on almost since the beginning when it seemed like every time we had it on, it was for a scandal. No scandal today. We're here to talk college football, playoffs, and Heisman Trophy and bowl season uh, with Stuart Mandel from The Athletic. What's up, Stuart? How you doing, buddy? I'm good, Steve. How are you? Good. You know, we talked in July, and that feels like yesterday. Time flies. I didn't realize it was that long ago. Yeah, I know. Like, I was thinking about that today. I was like, let me look back and see when he was on last. And it was the end of July. And it's like, wow. That was a quick season. That that went by in a blink. When you look back at the season, what do you think you're going to remember most? Playoffs, obviously, withstanding. But what will you, in bowl season, but what, what do you think you'll remember most about this college football season? 
it's really been a fairly a fairly uneventful season compared to some. It wasn't like we had usually you have that one weekend where everything you know goes to you know everything you thought you knew about the sport goes up in smoke. That didn't really happen. I mean, I think the story of the season has been Alabama and in particular Tua. Um, you know, both the dominance of that team through twelve games and then right, like you look at the three teams that went undefeated. They just kind of got on that roll. Like Clemson and Alabama were one, two, pretty much all year. Notre Dame worked their way up. You always waited for that Notre Dame loss that never came, kind of like you said. And then, you know, it was Georgia, Oklahoma, and Michigan, I guess, was right there for most of the year, too. Kind of forget about them because of how bad they lost to Ohio State. But yeah, it felt like a year where it kind of, you know, even the Heisman, it was like pretty much to a. And Kyle Murray were the names you heard, well, mostly Tua, all year long. Until Kyle, Kyle Murray kind of maybe emerged as a serious contender later. But just felt like the field outpaced everyone this year and, the, and that the field can never catch up to those few teams. Yeah, and, and, you know, and there's a, a situation where, you know, if this had been the BCS, there would be a lot of drama because you'd have three undefeated teams competing for two spots. But obviously there was room for all three of them. Um, you know, I just think it was a very top-heavy season. Alabama and Clemson were the preseason favorites going in, and here we are, you know, going into the playoff. They're still the favorites. And, uh, you know, you see just what a drop-off there is when you're, we're talking about three lost teams in the top ten. Um, and, and there were three lost teams in the top ten two weeks ago. So it just a few teams kind of separated themselves from the pack, took some of the drama out of it. But, you know, I don't want to be too negative. There were still some – I mean, I felt like I spent every week watching Ohio State almost lose to Nebraska or Maryland or – like, they, they themselves were a very dramatic team to watch. Um, there were plenty of good games. Just the, the national championship race itself has kind of been um, anticlimactic because we just assume Alabama and Clemson would be there at the end. Right, and there was classic games too, like that LSU-Texas A&M game. That was a classic. Just didn't happen to have any, you know, playoff implications per se. You've written really well about it on the Athletic, and it's been talked about everywhere. So I don't want to go on too long about the committee and their big decision to ultimately pick Oklahoma over Georgia. But let's talk about it for a quick second. And the more I thought about it, I think that in a way the committee was sort of protecting the actual games with their decision, right? I mean, if they would have picked Georgia instead of Oklahoma, wouldn't they have really been devaluing the games and the way the games are played out on the field? Wouldn't they have been saying the results of the conference championship games aren't important? You know, wins and losses aren't as important. You know, that it's just merely about, like, almost like it's like we could pick them after recruiting. Who has the most five stars? Let's put them in the playoffs. It's almost like, to me, and I don't know if this point was made as much, um, or if I just missed it, or if I'm maybe just overstating something, but it felt like the committee almost had to pick Oklahoma to protect what actually happened on the field to some degree. Do you buy that at all? It was uh, it was the safe pick. Uh, it was the the pick that, you know, preserves the establishment, preserves the existing system. It's relatively non-controversial. You know, it's actually been a little surprising to me that there wasn't as much, there really wasn't that much debate between Oklahoma and Ohio State. Once the committee 
put Oklahoma ahead of them the week before. Right. And people are like, oh, I guess Ohio State can't pass them. And it became, frankly, I would not have guessed going into the weekend that the debate would end up being Georgia-Oklahoma. I thought it would be, well, Georgia will lose. They'll be out of it. It'll be Oklahoma-Ohio State. So, you know, it shows you, uh, you know, the, the power of, of Georgia becoming the, the first team, and really the only team, obviously, going back to their last meeting, that's even come close to them. And, and obviously, you know, had a very good chance to win that game. So, you know, the difference between making that pick, which is fairly uncontroversial, and actually picking Georgia, I mean, the ramifications of that would have been huge. It would have been three of the five power conferences get left out. Um, the idea that winning your conference championship is supposed to be an important factor, which, by the way, in the end, they definitely said it was. Um, you know, that would have been reduced. And to your point, I mean, the you know, I personally believe Georgia is, like, subjectively one of the best teams. I, I mean, they played Alabama twice in this calendar year and taken it to the wire both games, and nobody else came within uh, 20 of Alabama. But if I say, okay, then they should be in the playoff, and I'm basically saying I trust my own eyes over what happened on the, you know, the results. Or, you know, people who say, oh, they should replace the committee and just go with what Vegas says. Well, Vegas, you know, their job is to predict future games, and I'm sure they would predict that Georgia would play Alabama better than Oklahoma or Notre Dame. But um, if that's the point, why why are we keeping score? You know, that, now you're just evaluating teams rather than, you know, rewarding teams based on the results. Right, and Vegas is trying to, to get bets on each side of the ledger as well. I mean, as much as they're trying to predict who would win by how many, they're trying to predict how many points can they say Alabama will win by to get people to bet equally on Alabama and Georgia, right. you know. But, um, yeah, I just thought, as I heard the arguments for Georgia, I just thought if they would have made it, they would have, it would have cheapened a little bit. It would have taken away play on the field. And, you know, I think ultimately Georgia had their chance to make the playoffs and they had, what, two 14-point leads on a neutral site in the state of Georgia with a chance to make the playoffs and they ultimately couldn't get it done. And then you have Oklahoma who was able to, in the state of Texas, at Jerry World, avenge the only loss on their schedule, which came in the last second, you know, on a walk-off kick. Um, so this I, would all be a lot simpler if, if they, you know, they're very insistent that they pick the four best teams, and and that's a very thing. That's how they were able to justify Alabama last year when they didn't necessarily have the resume. It, you know, if it was if they flat out came out and said we're trying to pick the four most deserving teams then nobody would be trying to argue for Georgia. Um, It's just that they've left it so subjective and so vague. And, you know, really the Alabama pick last year or Ohio State the year before when they had one loss and Penn State had two, um, I think is is the only thing that would even open the the possibility. But at the end of the day, we now have gone through this for five years. Mm -hmm. They've yet to take uh, a a two-loss team instead of a one-loss team, and they've yet to take a team that had a blowout loss on its resume like both Georgia and Ohio State have. So uh, for all the for all the time and effort that is spent going to Dallas and doing these rankings, it's really exactly the same as 80 years of the AP poll. Just don't lose. and uh, or, or if you're going to lose, lose close. Or early. Like Texas, yeah. uh, like Oklahoma did, yeah. Right. Yeah, have time to build that resume back up. Um, and, you know, ultimately I think it was uh, – it broke well for Oklahoma for Texas to end up in that game because – even like two weeks out, it looked, you know, iffy if it would be back-to-back weeks of West Virginia or 
you know, would Texas get to the game or even Ohio or Iowa State, excuse me, could have ultimately been in that game, which would probably would have been a disaster for Oklahoma. Um, looking forward, do you think that this season impacts any changes on the way we determine how a national championship is crowned? Or well, ultimately, does this kind of promote status quo longer? I think if you were to ask Jim Delaney and, and other commissioners, you know, honest truth, they would all admit that it's inevitable it's going to go to an 18 playoff. It's just a matter of when. Okay. Is it that urgent that they feel like they need to? It's a 12-year contract. This was year five. Is it that urgent that they feel like they need to blow up all those contracts, which would not be easy, and do it earlier than 12 years, or can they just wait the 12 years? And, you know, I definitely think if it had been Georgia, that you definitely would have heard calls to do it, that they're sick of the system, they're sick of being left out. I think it's interesting that Delaney did not necessarily raise any, um, you know, uproar overall. This is now the third straight year the Big Ten champion's been left out, and yet he seems to be accepting of it. So, is there going to be drastic change? No. I think there's going to be conversations about, um, I mean, I think the three conferences that play nine conference games are going to have to start having some conversations about whether it's hurting them. I mean, it is hurting them. Uh, they're the ones that always get left out. The two that play eight games always get in. Um, is it worth thinking about changing that model? I think there'll be discussions about that. And then the other thing that, you know, obviously is a storyline is UCF. And uh, right. I think, they beat LSU, and, go, and then have we now gone undefeated two years in a row, have beaten an SEC team in a bowl game two years in a row. Um, there's going to start to be more. I mean, that's really what helped change the BCS was the Utah not getting to play. Like, it was really those scenarios more than anything that caused the Justice Department to get involved and things like that. You know, I do think if UCF finishes undefeated for a second year in a row, there's going to be people with the best interest in that saying, you know, the system's extremely unfair. Um, it needs to be expanded. It needs to include a group of five. Uh, there are obviously people that feel that way already, but it's hard to, to explain, you know, the, the just how much that might grow if they beat LSU. Well, let's talk about what we have, and what we have is uh, Notre Dame versus Clemson and Oklahoma versus Alabama. Oklahoma versus Alabama is going to be very interesting just because of the quarterbacks involved and the fact that They'll probably likely finish one and two in the Heisman Trophy voting, and uh, they'll get to square up and play uh, in the um, the game in Miami, which I guess is the Orange Bowl, technically correct? Is that correct? I think it's the Orange Bowl. Whatever they'll play, yeah, yeah they'll play in yeah. the, in the one semifinal, and um, it's it's going to be a case of can Oklahoma outscore them? Because I'm sure there isn't anyone who feels like Oklahoma is going to be able to stop them. They haven't really. They couldn't even stop Kansas, right? So, what does Oklahoma need to do in your mind beyond the simplest outscore them analysis uh, to beat Alabama? Do you see it at all? Well, it would definitely help them if Tua is not fully recovered from his ankle injury because you know, the other night, how how when he wasn't, uh, you know, he got hurt early in that game and he just wasn't himself. And the Alabama offense was a lot less potent. Jalen Hurts came in and. And got it done, but you know, I they're just a different, you know, they're that they're much much more dangerous with 100% Tua being healthy. Um, and then on the other side of it, you know, it's just 
it's no secret. Oklahoma wins by, by you know, with this lethally efficient offense, the most efficient offense in the history of the sport right now. And, you know, Alabama is obviously a much, much better defense than they've faced to this point. But Oklahoma is a much, much better offense than Alabama has faced. So um, it's basically going to be can Kyler Murray and his receivers and Marquise Brown's health, by the way, is a question of that. Right. Can but- they – can they do what they usually do? You know, can they exploit an Alabama defense that's still really talented, but is a little less experienced in the secondary in particular um, than they have been in recent seasons? One thing that Oklahoma does really well, and I watch Oklahoma almost every week, is they shorten fourth quarters. You know, if they get the ball with around eight or nine minutes left, you'll see Lincoln Riley lean on his offensive line and play big-time physical football that you wouldn't expect from a team like Oklahoma. You know, they really try to push the other team, and they've done it very successfully. They did it in the Texas game. You watched that last drive, how they were able to just kind of move down the field, first and second down runs, timely third down conversions, you know, dominating at the line of scrimmage, kind of when they get the team at a point where they're worn out. And Oklahoma is big and strong and physical at the offensive line. But this is Alabama, right? Uh, this is a team with a first overall potentially potential nose tackle there. Is that a spot where you think Oklahoma is vulnerable in terms of one of their strengths not being able to be deployed against a team like Alabama? Yeah, I mean, I think I think because with all the attention over Kyler Murray, it gets overlooked just how powerful Oklahoma's running game has been. And it's because of that offensive line. You remember their star running back, Rodney Anderson, you know, was lost yeah. for the season pretty early on. And they just replaced him with a freshman, Kennedy Brooks, and moved right on. So, you know, Oklahoma's offensive line is really good, but you're right. You know, that's not something – you don't really um, go in thinking you're going to beat Alabama in the trenches. Right, the you don't teams think – that have given – yeah, you're, that's not going to be the plan, right? <laughs> right, I mean, no. The teams that have given him trouble – you know, the, on the few occasions that Alabama's defense has really struggled in the last four or five years has been against Johnny Manziel or, you know, um, I will say Ohio State in that playoff game was pretty physical against them, but it's usually a quarterback who just plays out of his mind, which Kyler Murray can certainly do. So um, that doesn't mean, I mean, Oklahoma, I assume Oklahoma's still going to try to run the ball because that's what they do, but, you know, they're probably not going to have much success. It's really uh, rare Frankly, the Citadel, I think, is the only team any all season that was able to run the ball on them. It'll be interesting, too, and fun because it's like this is kind of Kyler Murray's love letter to football, right, if he's really going to walk away. Um, it's, this whole season's sort of been that, this kind of like one chance for him to be the starter in a big-time D1 program. And, you know, it's it's been fun to watch him. It'll be interesting to see what he can do against Alabama. Quickly, let's talk about the other game. Notre Dame and Clemson, I feel personally like I have probably been guilty of just assuming at some point all year Notre Dame would lose and we'd be able to forget about them. And it just never happened. They won all their games. I've seen a few of them. They just don't seem as fast and as talented as the other teams in the playoffs. But they do seem, you know, balanced and there isn't a lot of like glaring, there isn't like a glaring weakness maybe. Um, and they do have, you know, they do have the mojo going a little bit, but Clemson to me, just in terms of talent and speed and 
blue chippers, they just seem like they're going to overwhelm Notre Dame. Tell me why I'm wrong about that if I am. I can't. I can't. Okay. Uh, it's hard to see a path for Notre Dame in that game. And yeah. and part of that is just how good Clemson is. I mean, they've, they've really got everything, right? They've got Travis Etienne. They've got Trevor Lawrence. They've got the best defensive line in college football. You know, the one area where they've been vulnerable is in the secondary. They're, they're, you know, um, a couple weeks ago, Jake Bentley threw 500 yards on them, uh, even though they won that game handily. But, uh, you know, Notre Dame is a team that uh, they are really good on defense. And so I wouldn't necessarily expect Clemson to run all over them. But offensively, you know, Ian Book has made a big difference at quarterback. But at the end of the day, the skill players, in particular the receivers, are pretty ordinary. So, you know, I think uh, they, they have a decent offensive line. So they're not necessarily going to get mauled like some Clemson opponents. But, you know, they're, they're – their MO is basically just to avoid mistakes, um, get the ball to their playmakers. They do have playmakers that can that can make a difference, uh, and we'll just see. We'll see if they can, you know, do to Clemson what, for example, Texas A&M did early in the season. And I know Trevor Lawrence wasn't, you know, t- fully the quarterback yet at that point. But um, second half of that game, Kellen Mond, the A&M quarterback, was able to do whatever he wanted uh, against Clemson's defense. So it's not impossible. Yeah, that was a really good game. I forgot was even this season. Now <laughs> that you mention it, um, what are you predicting? A Clemson versus I know it's they're both double digit favorites. So to say predicting whatever, but do you expect it to be Clemson Alabama in the final then? I do. I mean, I think uh, once Trevor Lawrence became Clemson's quarterback, which was starting quarterback, which was week five, and they beat somebody like sixty three to three. Uh, I, at that point, I just said. You know, you might as well fast forward to St. Clair. It's going to be Alabama Clemson. Um, they're just they're playing a different sport, frankly, than a lot of the other teams. Now, the only thing that, as, as of today, that would make me say, well, what about this, would be the health of Tua. And I wrote about that in his ankle. Like, if, if he weren't able to play or if he just clearly was very hobbled, you know, that's a different Alabama team. And we just don't know what until we see it. I mean, it's frankly fascinating to me, the idea of seeing – Oklahoma's offense against Alabama's defense. Um, but if he's healthy, no, nobody can stop that offense, much less. Uh, I mean, a lot of great SEC defenses haven't been able to stop that offense, much less Oklahoma's 103rd or whatever it is ranked defense. So, yes, we, we should end up seeing an Alabama-Clemson part four. It'll be interesting to see how quick Saban is with a, tr- with a, with a hook on Tua. You know, if it's like... 14 to 6 Oklahoma in the first quarter and two is hobbling out there maybe is 3 for 7 with a pick and 90 80 yards or something if he how quickly he goes to Hurts. I think that is a really interesting part of the game cuz they've been so Well, he may also just decide that, you know, I mean, Tua obviously in that offense they score quick. Um whereas with Jalen Hurts it's probably going to be a little more methodical and it may be that you to try to keep that Oklahoma offense off the field be methodical, um, right? That you want to be a little bit more methodical in this game. Right. Very interesting. Uh, let me ask you this. Can you give me like two or three? There's a million of them, right? Can you give me like two or three other bowl games I should definitely watch? You know, games that had the potential of, you know, just being awesome football games like LSU A&M was or something like that. You know, do you have a couple in mind you're excited matchup-wise that could just make for really compelling football? You know, the the non New Year six lineup this year is about as mm, un unexciting as I've seen, <laughs> and 
Some of that is the teams themselves. Some of it's just the way the matchups broke. I would have loved to have seen, and it was an Alamo Bowl could have done it if they wanted, West Virginia, Washington State, um, Mike Leach against Dana Holgerson. That would have been, to me, the matchup of matchups there. But they Iowa State travels better, so they went with Iowa State. So, you know, obviously I'm, I'm, I'm always, um, you know, I grew up in Big Ten country. I'm always going to be excited for the Rose Bowl, and obviously it, it added a whole other storyline with Urban Meyer retiring. This will be his last game. Uh, like I said earlier, there's a lot of riding on LSU-UCF. I'm very interested in that. I think Georgia-Texas Sugar Bowl is interesting just because, you know, we have seen teams in the situation Georgia's in where, I mean, they're a better team than Texas, but are they going to be totally deflated and crushed and not all that excited to go to the Sugar Bowl and play a 4 loss team? And if so, that could end up being a pretty good game. But outside of the New Year's Six, excuse me, you know, it's, it's, it's a pretty uninspired. There's nothing I can point to exactly and say, well, this will be a great game. Um, I w- there's a couple of group of five though. I mean, Appalachian State um, is a really good group of five team, and they're playing Middle Tennessee, uh, UAB won Conference USA. They're playing the MAC champ NIU. You know, some of those really early ones actually might be pretty interesting. Do you think Urban Meyer will ever coach again? You can just say yes or no if you want. Uh, yes, I, I do think he will. Uh, he's too. Uh, changes his mind just in general he changes his mind quite frequently right you know i do think he is he is dealing with a serious health concern i I don't like that people mock it 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 is real but you know i could see two years from now him being like well i worked with my doctors and we've got it under control and i'm ready to you know and i I need to get back in the game so you know he's 54 the idea that he'll he'll never coach the rest of his life to me seems a little unrealistic I've heard this a lot this week. I've heard Bob Stoops was able to walk away because he had Lincoln Riley in place, and Lincoln Riley's two for two with the playoffs. This decision was easier for Urban Meyer because Ryan Day is there. Do you think it's realistic for Ohio State fans to expect Ryan Day to have the success that Lincoln Riley's had? I think Lincoln Riley has been the exception. You know, The idea that you can follow a coach as great as Bob Stoops and have two seasons like he's had, um, I mean, Ohio State hasn't made the playoff the last two seasons, so if anything, you'd be expecting Ryan Day to do even better than Urban Meyer has. But the one thing I'll say about Ohio State, in in my time covering the sport, they're the only program that's never had a dip. You know, USC obviously is going through, you know, Alabama before Saban was very mediocre. Ohio State just every single year is in the mix, except for the one year with um, Luke Fickle as interim coach. So it's not like... I mean, Ryan Day has to try really hard not to win 10 games a year there. But is he going to do what Lincoln Riley's doing, go to the playoff and produce Heisman winners? I think that's asking a lot. Stuart Mandel writes wonderfully for The Athletic, who has had amazing specials all holiday season. I mean, if you're not on The Athletic yet, this last month has been a great time to join. I know they had an unbelievable Black Friday sale, and they've done sales since. So make sure you're following The Athletic on Twitter. Download the app. The app is amazing. Totally change your pooping life. You'll never be in there five minutes again. Uh, you can follow Stuart on Twitter. He's at SL Mandel on there. And um, you can follow his work, uh, like I said, on The Athletic. And he also, you, you still do a podcast with uh, Bruce Feldman, correct? Yes, The Audible. The Bruce Audible. Feldman and I uh, do that every Monday. Every Monday. So make sure you look for that. 
Um, anything else you want to plug, um, Stuart? Well, just real quick, you were mentioning some of the sales the Athletic has. And yeah. this is obviously a time when people are looking to give gifts. And if you know a sports fan who, who would love sports content, great sports writing, uh, go to theathletic.com slash gift. And uh, they have all sorts of great deals for you. Yeah, nothing beats Monday morning on The Athletic. Seriously, a Monday after football season, I wake up, open that app, and it's like you and all the college guys, people covering OU, I read that, all the Saints writers, NFL stuff. I mean, it's like 15 articles before I can even get out of bed on a Monday. Um, I, can't, <laughs> <laughs> I can't recommend it enough. Um, and then we'll get you out of here on this. Uh, Tua or... Kyler or Haskins, who you got? I think it's going to be Kyler, and I think it's not even going to be that close, which is crazy given Tua went wire to wire, but it just totally flipped on the last weekend. Unbelievable for Lincoln Riley, huh? Two years, potentially two Eisman winners and two playoffs. Wow, what a start to a career. And he's so young and talented, I feel like. Well, you can see why he's being rumored for NFL jobs. He's, Every job, right? Like yeah, We're going to hear his name the forever. Hot, the hot, yeah. <laughs> He's the hot coach in football right now. Unbelievable. And he can probably use that to just stay at OU and make another $500,000 a year and just, if he wants, like he can just probably just coast there for the next 20 years. Unbelievable. But, okay, oh, Stuart. Absolutely. Thank you for all the time uh, during a busy time. Have a great holiday season, a great new year. Go Northwestern. I know they got a big bowl game this year. I'm sure you're pumped about. Big holiday bowl. Big yep. holiday bowl. Good luck to the boys there. And uh, thank you so much for always being a friend of the show. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks so much, Steve. Tall, could have used a few pounds. Tight pants, points, hollering out. She was a black haired beauty with big dark eyes and points all her own, sudden way up high. Way up firm and high. I want to thank Stuart Mandel for being on the podcast today, not just today, but. You know, Stuart's been there for a long time coming on this program, and I really appreciate it. Uh, quickly, I want to do a book club update. Uh, I finished Permanently Suspended, The Rise and Fall. Oh, my phone shut down. I'm here. I'm going to get the title wrong. Permanently Suspended, The Rise and Fall and Rise Again of Radio's Most Notorious Shock Jock. Uh, it's the Anthony Cumia book. Um, I read it this week. It came in the mail. They sent me one copy. I'd be glad to pass it on to someone if someone's interested in it. You can email me, thesportscasters at gmail.com. I don't need to keep it. Uh, they only sent one, but I'd be glad to send it out. Uh, a couple thoughts. I enjoyed it. It felt a little rushed. Uh, it felt like he really wanted to get it out, maybe. Um, it's not that long of a book. It was an easy read, which was nice. Um really interesting to hear some of his thoughts on Opie, uh, some of his thoughts on Jimmy. Uh, the end of the show, he's still obviously very upset that Opie didn't fight for him when he was fired by Sirius. Uh, there's some interesting information about kind of him hooking up with Opie in the beginning, his marriage. Uh, there's a lot of good humor in it. 
Uh, so it's a it's a good read. It's an easy enough read that it really didn't matter how good or bad it was. You know, you just kind kind of just got in it and finished it, and thought, okay, you know, interesting. There's definitely some stuff in it that I'd like to talk to Anthony about. Uh, Keith the cop has told me Anthony will be on. Anthony was on before, so I don't have I don't have much reason to believe it won't happen. I think it would. Um, the book is available on Amazon.com, $17.99 for hardcover, $9.99 for ebook. It's also available on Apple eBooks. Again, it's called Permanently Suspended, The Rise and Fall and Rise Again of Radio's Most Notorious Shock Jock uh, by Anthony Cumia. If you want more information, I would follow Compound Media on Twitter. Anthony, of course, is not there anymore because he is permanently suspended from Twitter multiple times. Uh, the other book, which is my project this weekend, I want to finish this this weekend and reach out to David Grzybowski. Uh, he reached out to me, asked if I'd check out his book, Mr. All Around, The Life of Tom Gala. The forward's written by Bill Rafferty. I'm going to try to finish this this weekend. Uh, maybe we can get David and Anthony both on next week, hopefully one or the other, because I'd like to get them both on before we take a break for Christmas and New Year's and get ready to start Season 9. So that's kind of where the book club is at, uh, the two books. Uh, like I said, I finished Permanently Suspended, and I'm going to work on Mr. All Around this weekend. Uh, and that's kind of where we are. And then we'll pick back up in 2019 with season nine. And uh, we'll see what what comes out and what we're going to read and all that. So let's take a break. Uh, Tim Booth is next. Tim Booth, of course, is from the AP. He's based in Seattle. Uh, and we're going to talk some Pearl Jam with him. But really, I reached out to Tim to talk about the Seattle hockey team. Uh, they were named the 32nd NHL team. They're going to start in three years, uh, which seems like an eternity. Uh, but we'll get some information from Tim uh, about that and see what the buzz is in Seattle and also talk some Pearl Jam. So we'll take a break, and we'll be right back with Tim Booth. All right, our next guest today is a sports writer and editor for the Associate Press and a graduate of Central Washington University. He's making his second appearance on the show today, and he's a big-time Pearl Jam fan like myself. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Tim Booth. What's up, Tim? How you doing, buddy? Welcome back uh, to the podcast. Thank you. Hey, I'm doing good, Steve. How about you? Really good. So, okay, before we do anything, let's get the important stuff out of the way first. So I went to three of the road shows, and I believe you went to the two home shows, correct? I did, and I went to the first of the road shows in Missoula. Oh, okay. So we both went to three this summer. Seattle, too, yeah. is your best one, correct? Yeah, I was I was kind of thinking Missoula was going to be because I'd seen them there in 2012 when they played the basketball arena, and it was that still might be my favorite show. Um, so I had this really high hope for what Missoula was going to be. And then I went there, what was it? Two days or three days after Seattle too. And I was still exhausted from Seattle too. And I think they were as well. Um, <laughs> so it was, it was a little bit of Missoula was a little bit disappointing. It was still a great show, but it wasn't quite what I had sort of made it up to be. But yeah, C- Seattle too is the more I think back on it and the more I've gone back and listened to that show, it's kind of climbed up the ranks of, of my favorite Pearl Jam shows of all time. Yeah, I took advantage of the $5 bootleg sale to buy that one. Um, you know, I figured for 5 bucks, and I've listened to it twice now, and I think it was the best show of the run. 
I mean, it certainly was the best set list, yeah. I think, and um, just played really well, I thought, and I really liked that one. Of my three, Chicago one was the best of the three, um, a lot because it was just a perfect night. Like, it was just a beautiful yeah. summer night. At, like, it was like the perfect backdrop for a concert. It made everything a little bit better. Like, it was like a seven or an eight set list, but and they played about an eight or a nine the crowd was like a 10 and the atmosphere was like a 10. And I, I've, I've thrown this theory out to a friend that I go to a lot of the shows with. I said, you know, at this point, almost everything is equal at the shows. The set lists are about almost about the same in terms of quality every night. Mm-hmm. Um, the And the band plays about as well as they always like almost every night. They're about the same in terms of how well they play. And it seems like what makes a show better or worse for me at this point it's everything around the show, the people you're around, yeah. the venue, the, you know, it seems like that's what's kind of making the separation. Whereas like on the 2000 tour, it might've been like, did they play breath tonight? You know, or something like that, yeah. that would create the separation. And I feel that in the no opener, 30 song set lists, how great they are at this point of their careers, that it's sort of shifted away from that and that you get about the same quality every night it's everything around it that kind of is a variable to me yeah the, it was interesting the first seattle show because i even walked away from that one going it didn't it, it felt it felt tight it felt like a, it felt like they were nervous essentially and then they came back and admitted two nights later that they essentially did and it was like they decided we're going to take all of this nervous energy we had on on wednesday night for show one and we're just going to throw it all out the window and just kind of go crazy. And then they end up playing for three and a half hours to the point where my wife went with me for that show. And we kind of looked at each other at one point and we're like, God, we're exhausted. And we're just, <laughs> we're standing here listening to incredible music, but damn, we're tired. And it's like, it's 1115, 1130. And it's like, are they ever going to end sort of thing? Which is great. But at the same time, it was like, wow, that was a, that was a long show. But um, yeah, you're right. It's, it, it, it is kind of the, the atmosphere and so, I mean that was the great thing about Missoula was it was such an event there that they were they were coming back there and so the town was just we rolled into town around midday and and the town was just a buzz about what was happening and the bars were packed and people were having a great time um, I remember having the same feeling when they went to Moline back in 2014 the night they played no code front to back for some inexplicable reason which was awesome right. and I just happened to I just happened to be there. But it was, it was, the town was a buzz and everyone was excited and you're in this tiny little venue and here comes this, this incredible band and, oh, they're going to play an album front to back just for the heck of it. So it was, it's, it's that kind of stuff now. You're right. It's, it's that, it's, it's those experiences that sort of make the, make the events. I was at the uh, Toronto show and they played binaural back to back. And what was really great about that is it was a two show run and when they play a whole album in a two show run, it really gives you a chance to see a lot of different songs in two nights. Like I think I seen, yeah. I want to say something like 56 different songs in two nights or something like that. And then, you know, it's a big reason is because they played all binaural. So you got, you know, 14 different songs or whatever that night. But yeah, I mean, anytime you start a show like they did in Seattle night two with oceans, footsteps and nothing, man, I think, you know, you're in for a pretty, a pretty special night. Not, yeah. not to mention Thin Air and All, all or None were played back to back. Let's see. Yeah, it was Crown it of was, Thorns. It, it was. It was. A, 
It was a pretty good show. It was a really good show. 37 songs. Hell of a night. Um, What do you, as a, let me ask you this, as a Pearl Jam fan, what do you want the most right now? Like, what are you longing for them to do the most? Is it more shows? Is it new songs? Is it something else? Like, what are you just. Great question. Yeah, like, what? Great question. What are you thirsty for? Yeah, I love, I, I think I like experiences. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's where I'm at now. It's like, I, I, trust me, like when they put out new music, it's, it's fantastic. Like hearing them do the cover of Missing and then uh, Can't Deny Me hearing it live was awesome. And, and you know, so, those, you know, anytime they do something new, it's it's great. But um, I, I love the sort of the experiences. Like a, a buddy of mine that I go to a, a lot of shows with um, who's in Chicago, we've made it, a, like we've just decided that the next time we're playing Philly, we're going. Like, because something incredible always happens when they play Philly, and we've never seen them play Philly. We've seen them play Madison Square Garden, but we haven't seen them play um, in Philadelphia. And so it's like, okay, well, the next time they're there, we're going to go because who knows what's going to happen. Um, so it's it's that kind of stuff. Like this summer, I happened to be in Europe after covering the World Cup when they were touring, and we were trying to figure out the logistics of would it work to go see them in Barcelona or would it work? You know, I was trying to figure out could I get from could I get from Sochi, Russia to Krakow, Poland to see them play and then get back to Sochi? And it's like, no, <laughs> it was like logistically impossible, but it's, it's that kind of stuff. It's like, where can I say that I went and saw this band perform live and see this incredible show? I think that's, that's sort of where I'm at um, now. But yeah, I would love new music at the same time as well. Yeah. I think my number one thing is a new album. Um, my number two thing is arena shows. The stadium shows are okay. They can accommodate a lot of people, and the venues are special. But, you know, my first show was in an arena, and there's something about his voice in the arena. And, you know, there's something about getting that list. You know, there's thir- let's say it's 13 shows they announce on a Tuesday. And like you said, you look at that list, and it's like, okay, how do I get to at least four of these? Let me set that as the minimum. Which four? Yeah. And then where do I go from there? Can it be more or not? You know, like that that two or three hours, you call your friends that go with you. What do you what what sticks out to you? What are you looking at? Like it's almost like that afternoon is is really great. So I, I'd love to just give me a list of thirteen shows this summer, put them inside, uh, or even shed shows, I guess. That's not my favorite thing. But I, I would like a break from the baseball parks, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I mean, two of my, three of my favorite shows were in the arena in Missoula, in the Spokane Arena in Spokane, Washington, which holds about for a concert holds about ninety five hundred, and then the one in Moline where I think the building maybe held eight thousand. Um, so yeah, I, I, I get that. Like, I love, I love those sort of intimate kind of, kind of venues where they, um, where they can, you know, where they perform and and. Trust me, I would love it if they decided they wanted to do like a thirty night residency at the Showbox in downtown Seattle, which right, holds about yeah. eight, which, which holds about eight hundred and fifty people in it when it's you know breaking fire code, which would be just incredible. But um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll you know I'll take whatever. But I get what you're saying. I think I, the stadium shows are great, but there is something special about a smaller kind of venue to see them. In. My number one show of all eighty three is definitely Benaroya. Um, but it's almost unfair to rank that because it's such a unique kind of special event. You know what I mean? Like it's, 
like sometimes I pull a few out and say like how do you compare basically an acoustic show at Benaroya Hall to night three of four in Philly closing the spectrum like they're so yeah. incredibly different but those are ones that would come to mind when someone says what's your favorite I went to the last two of those four Philly shows and they were really great. Like you said, special things happen. It was like the Saturday show was the perfect show, like where everything was perfect. And then the second, the last show was the let's break all the rules. Let's dress up like Devo and play whip it. Let's play 40 songs. Let's play bugs for the first time. Let's play out of your mind because some rich guy wanted to donate 30 grand or whatever it was, you know? (laughs) So it's like, you know, like a weekend like that, was amazing you know and it's hard to compare yeah. that to ben Arroyo, which was this sort of fluke where i'm in my college dorm and i say to myself all right tickets go on sale at 10 o'clock i'll go to ticketmaster.com and see if i can get a pair and it sold out in 30 seconds and somehow i got a pair so then it was like all right yeah. well you have a pair now how the hell do you get to seattle you're in you're in fredonia new york you know it's like well i guess gotta cash that student loan check and uh <laughs> Buy a flight, you know, and and then next thing you know, you're you're standing outside of this place, and you're like, Pearl Jam is playing here tonight. Like, really? And this this is amazing. Like, Pearl Jam is here. Wow, you know. And I went to the two Borgata shows, and it was another kind of feeling. I remember walking in at the casino, walking into where finally, because you like at casinos, you can't see the venue because they're just kind of behind closed doors, you know. And I remember like finally walking in and being like, Wow, they're playing in this room this is going to be sick, you know? And it's like, but I've been lucky. I've been a lucky fan and I owe so much to them. And I, you know, amazing. And I, I met boom and in, in Chicago this, uh, this summer, which was cool at Nike town. Oh, very cool. Yeah. He was, Oh, nice. yeah, he was ready to, to either try on or buy about 15 pairs of sneakers. The guy behind him had a stack of sneakers found him around. It, it had to be 10 feet tall. And I said, hey, Boom, it was a great show last night. And he shook my hand. I, he's like, oh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I'm like, I hope the weather holds up tomorrow. He's like, oh, me too. I'm like, all right, you have a great day in the city. And, he just walked, and I just let it, left it at that. It was, it was a, very, uh, a very fine meeting with Boom, who is a large man when you're up close to him. He's very big yeah, and, I've, I've, and thick and, and uh, bigger than I've, I've had the chance. I've had the chance to meet Mike and Jeff. Um, but a really close friend of mine used to play basketball with Jeff. Um, I've met stone once, so it's, they're, they're, they're pretty, they're pretty, uh, down to earth and, and, uh, pretty easy going cool guys. Yeah. So I met, this is the last thing and we'll move on. We'll talk about the hockey team in a second for everyone who's <laughs> wondering, uh, if I'm going to get to what I promised, uh, I met boom, that little interaction. And then in 2006 in Detroit at the palace of Auburn Hills, I pulled up parked and needed to get my 10 club tickets and the arena was in front of me and I needed to decide if going left would take me to the front or going right would take me to the front. So I picked left, which took me to the back. And as I was walking the long way, obviously at this point around the arena to try to get to the front, as I walked more and more behind and got by the buses and stuff standing all by himself while with big Pete, but basically by himself was McCready. So I stopped and I talked to him for, at least 15 minutes before anyone else came up. And we talked mostly about Crohn's disease and, you know, uh, uh, the avocado record had just come out and he had inside job. on it. Uh-huh. I kind of talked about that for a while. He was very great. Very nice. And then the only other interaction I've had was Eddie Vedder at Benaroya Hall, which I totally blew 
we uh, walked into the arena or to the, uh, what would you call it, orchestra hall. And we were trying to, we had the first row of the balcony. So we're trying to find our way up just to see what our seat looked like. So it's like the second we had walked in and um, we kind of, you know, it's like, it's like a college campus building basically is what Banner Royal Hall is for people who yeah. have never been yep, there. Exactly. Yeah. And so we're kind of walking around the halls and we find this like ballroom and there's like a party in there and we kind of walked in and we're like, well, this party isn't for us. I think it was for the youth care, you know, a lot of that because it was a benefit for youth care. So I think the, the kids that were involved and the organizers, you know, it's like a benefit, uh, like a party before the show. So we kind of walk out uh-huh. and there's an elevator across the way and I'm kind of squinting to see where the elevator says it goes. And someone asks me for my autograph, which I thought was weird. Uh, so I turned ar- <laughs> turned around to realize she wasn't asking me, but she was asking Eddie Vetter, who was literally standing directly next to me. Um, and I just turned and looked at him, and he kind of looked up, realizing I was looking at him, and we kind of gave each other, like, the head nod with the eyes, like, you know, like, hey, like, that kind of thing. And uh-huh. I watched him sign the autograph, and the girl said, thank you. And she went off, and then the elevator opened. And all by himself, Ed got into the elevator. And I remember saying to myself, you should get on the elevator too. And then I remember saying, no, really, get on the elevator. What are you doing? Get on the elevator. Say hello. Do something. And then the elevator closed, and he was gone. <laughs> and that was <laughs> – I totally here, totally blew it. <laughs> totally froze up and blew it. Here, here, here's, here's my last really quick story. Yeah, go so, for it. Back in back in two thousand and it was early fifteen. It was the it was when the Seahawks played the the Patriots in the Super Bowl in Arizona. Um, that that February, McCready was doing a special um, was basically a special guest conductor for the Seattle Symphony who performs at Ben Royal. And uh, so they they had promoted this and whatever, and I had bought tickets like immediately after they went on sale. So I'm like, this is going to be really cool. Just if nothing else to see McCready, the, uh, a symphony orchestra. And so of course the concert is the day before the Super Bowl. <laughs> so I'm in, I'm in, I'm in Arizona at the Super Bowl covering it. And I just, so we had bought some, I think we had bought four tickets. I think that's what it was. Somehow we decided to buy four. And so my wife went, one of her sister went, and then a couple of her really close friends went and she texts me about, I'm, I'm out having dinner or whatever. And she texts me about 10 minutes into the show. And she goes, we're sitting in the second row. McCready's parents are right in front of us. Wow. And, and then that night ended up being a mad, uh, like a, a mini the mad, mad I remember. Reunion. Yeah. 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 And I'm like, oh, you have got to be kidding me! Damn it, Seahawks so, success! Yeah, yeah. Was yeah that exactly. Was, that exactly. was the year they had the big comeback against Green Bay, right? Green Bay had to choke that game away. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that was bad. Yes, I would have. I would have been there if not for. Oh, I can't remember the tight end who fumbled the onside kick. But yeah, yeah, that idiot. So there you go. Yeah, exactly. Oh, uh, we could do this for hours, and someday we probably should. But let's transition. We'd probably, yeah, exactly. <laughs> let's transition and talk a little bit about Seattle. Uh, Getting a hockey team, it's cool to me. It seems like a really cool place to have one. Here's what I want to ask you first, because you live there and I don't. Do people care about this? Um, yes, they care about it because it's because it's new 
and because there is a strong um, there is a strong hockey fan base here. Okay. It's been mostly connected with with the junior programs that are here the the Silver Tips, the Everett Silver Tips, and the and the Thunderbirds, Spokane Chiefs, right? Um, even down into Portland with the Winterhawks. So there is a strong hockey fan base here, and there's been so many transplants that have come into Seattle, especially in the last ten years. We've kind of had this in Seattle's history. There's been these waves of transplants that have moved into the area. And sort of boom the boom the population base. And you saw it back in the in the eighties and nineties when Microsoft kind of went crazy. And you've seen it in the last five to seven years, especially with the growth of Amazon and and the the growth of you know Microsoft continuing to grow and more and more tech companies sort of relocating to the area. And so you have a lot of people now who have come in from the East Coast, or they've come in from Toronto or Montreal or have relocated from Vancouver, whatever the case might be. And so that's only deep in the pool that you're picking from um, when it comes to finding the, you know, sort of the hockey fan here. So people care. Um, it's not, it's not a hockey hotbed. I wouldn't say that, but people around here love sort of the new thing. They love rallying around something that kind of connects their community and so you saw it with the founders when they came on board with MLS back in the late, you know, basically 10 years ago. Um, people rallied around that because it was new and it was exciting. And yeah, it was in the wake of the Sonics leaving for Oklahoma City, but it was something that anyone who had come in as a transplant could sort of rally around and, and claim as their own because it was a new thing and they weren't necessarily uh, turning their back on maybe the teams that they had rooted for as a kid growing up in, in this place or that place the hockey team is going to have the same effect here. It's just that now, unlike 10 years ago when the, ML, when the MLS came here, there's a lot more money in this market. Okay. And so I think that also sort of deepens the pool of how, how fervent the fan base is going to be here. Now, they're going to spend about $800 million to get Key Arena ready for this, and that's why it's three years away. I know the ownership group kind of thought they could probably do it in two um, but with the combination of potential labor issues that year and the league not wanting them to potentially have to start on the road for, say, a month or two, they, I guess, ultimately agreed to, to three years. Um, a lot can happen in three years, right? Is there anything that you can foresee that would make them really regret waiting that long? Or does it not, not really, really matter? When I, 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 yeah, I, I don't think it's the only thing you lose is momentum okay. and the everything had been geared towards 2020. I mean, fr- from the start, everyone, right. 2020, 2020, 2020. Um, that was what they were saying publicly behind closed doors. There was a lot of concern about 2020 and it had to do with the labor situation because they don't think anyone's, they don't think there's going to be a stoppage because they don't think the boat, the owners and players want to screw up the, you know, sort of the goodwill and, and the way the league is, is progressing right now, but there is that hanging over it. So publicly they were saying 2020 privately, they were hedging and saying, maybe we should think about 2021. And then the, the tipping point was when the, when the final documents were approved for the renovation of key arena, the stipulation that was put in there by the C- Seattle city council, because Seattle government has to get in the way of everything um, was that they needed final approval by the NHL before they could put a wrecking ball on the side of the building. 
they could not they could do some preliminary work they could get the get the place staged and, and sort of set to go but they couldn't really until that point came and that was basically the end of september i think it was like september 28th 29th somewhere in that neighborhood is when the final approval was given when the when the nhl board of governors or when the executive committee uh, uh, you know gave their recommendation less than a week later and it wasn't taken to a vote of the full board of governors that day right there that ended it because right. that killed the two-month cushion that they could had in the construction timeline if they I, I talked to someone who's associated with it um after the announcement and they said it would have had to go exactly to plan. There couldn't have been one foul up of any significance in order to have that building ready by November 1st of 2020. So right there, you're, they're saying we have to be perfect for the next, you know, 23 months. And we're still going to have to start and play the first three weeks of the season on the road. Um, so that, that was sort of the tipping point. Once that happened in, in September and October, where they didn't have the team approval right then and they couldn't start construction right then, that was them saying, okay, we need to, we need to push this back. Let me that was the labor situation, and, and, and it, it kind of makes sense why, but it kills a lot of the momentum that was building toward having a team start in two years. Yeah, it's a bummer to me. I mean, just because it makes it feel so, so much further out. Let me ask you this. When you look at the history of expansion – and teams shifting markets even in this league. And you look at the ones that have worked and the ones that haven't. It seems like the ones that work, like Tampa has worked, Nashville has worked, Dallas has worked, Vegas has been a success so far. And you look at the ones that haven't worked, Atlanta was a bust. Um, Florida's a bust. I know it's been there a while, but it's a bust. I mean, no one is in that arena ever. Yeah. Um. It seems like the difference is success, right? When the team is successful and gets successful in a shorter period of time, it seems like these, like Vegas, worked so has worked so well this year, but or this so far, but they went to the Stanley Cup Finals last year. It's like a dream situation the way that it worked, and I think the NHL is smart to keep the same rules in terms of the expansion draft. It'll be interesting to see if teams are as aggressive. Um, in terms of trading as they were with um, with Vegas, that will be interesting to see play out. But my question for you is, how important do you think these two things will be to the success of the franchise? One, winning and winning in a short period of time. And two, uh, finding a rival. Like you talked about the soccer team, who's had this incredible rivalry with Portland. And that seems to just sort of like be such a great selling point for the franchise. They have this incredible rival in there close like will they need to find this unbelievable rival like vancouver seems like they could be the perfect portland to you know vancouver could be the portland to the nhl soccer team um how important do you think finding a rival is and winning is to the success uh short term of the franchise um yeah winning obvious winning yes 100 i mean i think part of the reason i'll use the soccer team here as an example part of the reason they still get 40,000 per game as an average is because they have made the playoffs every year. They made the playoffs in their, right. in their expansion year. Like they've been successful from the start. Um, so yeah, winning, being relevant, 
it's going to be hugely important. I mean, I think you look you look at the baseball team here, the Mariners. They haven't made the playoffs since 2001, and they just are basically breaking down their franchise, saying it's going to be another two or three years before they're contending again. You're going to have a 20-year lapse between playoff appearances. That's that that erodes your fan base uh, immensely. So yes, winning is going to be crucially important. I don't think initially they have to win. Like they don't need to do what Vegas did. They don't need to make the Cup finals. Be in contention for a playoff berth. Make the playoffs in your first couple of years. Maybe make a run to a conference final in your first five years. Something like you know, you do stuff like that. You will help to continue to build the fan base that's going to be there. Who from the start because it's something new and it's cool and exciting and, and, and all of that. To your second point, it's already there. I mean, okay. Vancouver and Seattle, yeah. it's not, they're ready it's to not, roll. It's not Seattle, Portland. Yeah. It's not Seattle, Portland, but Vancouver, Seattle is, is a legitimate, is a legitimate rivalry and will be a, a legitimate rivalry. It's, it's funny. You mentioned that I'm actually working on a story right now about, about that because I was up in, in Vancouver a couple of weeks ago and was talking with some of their management, like they're, they're incredibly excited because they can they can promote the rivalry, they can sell the rivalry, they can um, it, they can almost work together with Seattle to to create opportunities, marketing, business, whatever it might be, to really build that up. And the fact they're going to play four or five times a year, um, you know, it's, it, it, Vancouver is has been as big a supporter of this plan as maybe any team in the NHL from the start because of all the different business opportunities for them. And then on the hockey side, the fact that you have far less travel now, like right. you have, you play two games, 150 miles down the road. It's a 33 minute flight. I've taken it before. You know, it's like, it, it, it simplifies things so much for them from, from that aspect. And, and then from the business side, all the things that they can sell to go along with it. So, um, I don't, they don't need to create it. I think, I think creating rivalries like with San Jose would be good or with Calgary and Edmonton would be good and, and certainly help to, to build sort of the, you know, what hockey means here. But that with the, the rivalry with Vancouver, it's, it's already there and it will be, it'll be really cool. I think, I think it'll be, re- it won't be the Battle of Alberta. It won't be Philly and Pittsburgh. It won't be, um, you know, Toronto and, everybody else but it'll be but it'll it'll be really good when it when it finally comes to pass well tim we have it here in buffalo um you know we're 90 miles from toronto and just last night the sabers and leafs played for the first time this season and it's the first time in probably five or six years where both teams were near the top of the standings and jack eichel and austin matthews put on an absolute show i mean it was the best regular season hockey game i've seen in five or ten years i mean Jack Eichel scored two goals in the third period um, to give the Sabres a lead. And then Austin Matthews won the game with an absolute snipe um, with two seconds left in overtime. And you're looking out there. I'm looking out there on the ice last night and seeing a 22-year-old and a 21-year-old, you know, and I'm looking at the arena, and it's probably 9,000 Maple Leafs fans and 9,000 Sabres fans in the arena. And I'm just like, wow, this is going to be a fun 10 years. And when I think of, yeah, we don't know who Seattle has, but we knew, we do know, you know, that Vancouver has their two young stars in place in Besser and Peterson, who, even though three years is a long time, they'll be there and they'll be just entering their primes um, because kids enter this league so young. I mean, Peterson's eighteen, I think, 
19 maybe. Yeah. Um, and Besser is not much older than that. And then in that division also you have McDavid, you know, who will come to town a few times. Johnny Gaudreau is in that division. So there's some good young – there's great young stars all across the league, which is something that the NHL does have going for it right now, is how young their best players are. Um, but, yeah, it's, a, it's an exciting time for Seattle. Listen, uh, we talked so long about Pearl Jam, we probably won't get to anything else. Uh, it's at by Tim Booth on Twitter. Uh, you can find him there. He writes for the AP. Um, and the best way to find his work is follow his Twitter. He links to it well. Give me one sentence on this. I'll let you out of here on this. How will the Seahawks season end? They will make the playoffs. They will probably win a wild card game because I think they'll be matched up against either Dallas or Chicago, and I'm not sold on either team. And then they will get boat raced by either New Orleans or the Rams in the the divisional round. It's it's a a surprising year to me. I, I really did not expect them to be this good. One more follow-up real quick. How good yep. Russell Wilson's season? Is it his best, second best, his worst? How good has the season been for Russell Wilson in terms of a Seahawks team that didn't have a lot of expectations, and now we're talking maybe a team with a playoff win? I think he it, it'll rank among – let me put it this way. Okay. His numbers won't be – they won't be astounding. Like right. he won't throw for 4,000 yards or, or, or whatever. Maybe he will, but he, he probably won't get there. Um, from a managing their offense and playing within the scope of the offense, if you take away the first two weeks of the season against Denver and Chicago, it might be his best season. He, he is, you take away those first two games when they didn't know what they wanted to do offensively or who they wanted to be offensively and the shift they made in week three and him playing within the scope of what they want to do, it might be his best season. I'll usually take a nap after the 1 o'clock games, and I'll wake up around halftime, and I'll look at his numbers, and he'll be like 9 for 12 for 98 yards, three touchdowns, no picks. It's like, wow, this guy is having an interesting year, so I want to ask you that. Uh, again, it's at by Tim Booth. Threw, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, he threw three touchdowns on, on four completions last week in the first half against San Francisco. <laughs> It's it's crazy. Uh, yeah. At by Tim Booth on Twitter, AP.com. Anything else you wanted to mention, uh, plug-wise? Uh, Pearl Jam is consulting with the arena group that's redoing Key Arena here. So I'm hopeful for a 20-night residency when the building opens in the spring of 2021. Well, if that happens, I'll be there that's for right, a week. Well, I'll be there for a week. That's so probably we'll a little to too drinks. optimistic, but uh, we'll see. <laughs> yeah, if it happens, I'll be there for a week, so we'll have to do drinks. Thanks for doing this, Tim. Uh, good. I really appreciate it. Have a great New Year. Merry Christmas, all that stuff. Yeah. You too, Steve. Right, I want to thank Tim Booth, and I also want to thank Stuart Mandel for being on the podcast today. Don't forget, you can find this episode of the podcast and all episodes on our SoundCloud page, dating back to 2011 at soundcloud.com slash sports casters. You can find more information about the show on my Twitter page at sports underscore casters, and you can email me the sportscasters at gmail.com. You can find me, uh, 
in those places. Also, uh, I mentioned earlier the Motivation Through Music podcast will be back next week uh, with an episode about moving pictures by Rush. And for more information about that, it's at M through M pod on Twitter. Uh, my friend Peter Winson has a new episode of Greetings from Allentown about a 1993 episode of a WWF syndicated show uh, with Todd Pettengill. And uh, it's a good, good show. Uh, the last match for Ric Flair in the WWF is covered. And for more inf- information about that, it's at GF Allentown pod on Twitter. Love Peter. Love his show. Of course, we do the Adams Division podcast together, and we'll be doing one in January uh, about the Royal Rumble. So I'm looking forward to that uh, for sure. Uh, I think that's about it for plugs. Um, so let's do one last thing. I'm gonna. I had a bunch of different ideas for this this week. Uh, I thought about maybe doing my top five TV shows of 2018. Uh, which was easy enough to kind of put together. And I have that. Maybe I'll do that next time. Maybe not. I also thought about doing something on, we took Paula to her first movie today. Uh, so I thought about that. Um, but then I remembered that I've been trying to make this a little bit more personal uh, and a little bit more really about me and what I'm feeling and what I'm thinking. And, I said, well, you know what? Don't wuss out. Talk about Rick Emmett. So, all right, here's the story. I've been a fan since Triumph for as long as I've loved music. Uh, Triumph is a three-piece band that originated in Toronto. And the first song I ever loved was a song called Magic Power, uh, which is by Triumph. And I used to sing it uh, as a really young kid. And and I I think I, I found the Magic Power. Um, and the love of the song and my love for music from my Uncle Paul, my mom's brother, uh, who was considerably younger than my mom. I think he was like around high school age when I was born. And, you know, there's these stories of him sleeping under my crib when I was a baby. And, um, you know, we spent a long time being best friends. But the last few years uh, haven't been great for us. We had kind of a blow up in New York City uh, when my brother was playing hockey there. Um, He actually had a broken leg, which I just wish I would have never went that weekend because he wasn't playing anyway. Um, And then we kind of patched it up, but it wasn't the same really. And then this summer, uh, we kind of had another blow up and we kind of haven't talked much since. Uh, I've seen him around and, you know, I haven't been standoffish or anything. And I've tried to share some of Paula's life with him because I I know he loves Paula. Uh, But things between us just haven't been great. Uh, Last time I seen Rick... Emmett, who was the singer of Triumph and now mostly plays solo, uh, was actually uh, with Paul and my brother Anthony. Uh, maybe about a year ago, maybe a little bit more than that, it was at the Trelf where him and uh, he played a show. We, we had a great time. It was a great night. And then we were actually going to go see Rick playing Batavia with a band uh, the day after we had our kind of blow up. And one of the first things he said, kind of real childish, childish I thought, was, I'm not going tomorrow. I don't want to be with you or something like that. So we didn't go. Uh, Anyway, shortly after the summer, Rick Emmett announced that he was going to uh, play a show in Buffalo or play a series of shows this fall and that you should go because it might be it for him. His visa is expiring 
He's not going to renew it. He's going to play out the run. He's going to take the first six to eight months off of 2019. He's going to go to the beach with his wife. He's going to vacation. And then he's going to decide if he still wants to be a musician. And right now he's not sure. And he thinks he might retire. So I knew I wanted to go to this show for sure. Uh, Anthony was on a tournament. I actually talked to my dad who had expressed some interest in going. But of course he didn't. He had something else going on, he said. So it was just me. So the nice thing about this show is that the Riviera Theater, which is actually in North Tonawanda, uh, which is north of Buffalo where I live. So this was literally a five-minute drive from my house. So I watched the Oklahoma game last Saturday, most of it, the Big 12 championship game. And then uh, Paula and Tammy were gone. They had some stuff they were going to do, and I just kind of chilled home. And my plan was to go over around 7 o'clock, buy a ticket, get some chicken wings at this place called Dwyer's, which is a really good chicken wings in Buffalo, and then go see the show. So I did exactly what I said. I left the house about quarter to seven, got down there, bought a ticket, 25 bucks at the window, day of the show. It was a fifth row, dead center, beautiful seat. I went over to Dwyer's and uh, ate some chicken wings, watched the end of the Georgia-Alabama game, uh, which went well, obviously, for Oklahoma with Alabama winning that. Uh, and then I went over to the show, and I sat down, and it was packed. The theater was full. Uh, and I think I sat down about 5 to 8, and about 5 after 8, Rick was on. And look at he played he played a beautiful show. It's just as good as the one that I had went to in March, a year or whatever ago with Anthony and, and Paul that we loved. Uh, but obviously there was a different mood in the crowd. There was a different tone. Uh, everyone knew this was the last show. Now, there is going to be two shows, I guess, in Toronto. Sometime in January, I guess, is a say goodbye to the Toronto crowd. Uh, but this was it for the U.S. This is the last one on the books. Could there be more? He said never say never. Uh, but I do believe he is sincere and that he doesn't know what he wants to do. That he's going to take some time, the six to eight months. Uh, and then he'll he'll see if he wants to do something. Now, I went in with the mindset that this was it. You know, I, I kind of feel in my heart that he might be done. Now, he's a younger guy. He's still in his 60s. Uh, so there's still plenty of time, I think, in his life to play again. Uh, so maybe he will, maybe he won't. But as we've seen with Rush, uh, sometimes when they say maybe, they might mean it. And it seems like when they say definitely, they don't mean it, right? Kiss and Motley Crue and, I mean, The Who. I mean, how many farewell tours in rock and roll have we fall, fallen for over the years? But um, it was sad. There was a sadness to it. As great as the music was, there was a sadness to seeing this guy uh, for what could be the last time. And he still sings great. He plays unbelievably. Um, and, you know, got to hear just some songs that I've loved my whole life. Triumph songs, um, solo songs. Um, there was a cool sing-along thing that we did. And so it was fun. And as the show was going on, I knew that Magic Power was coming, that Magic Power was going to be the last song before the before the last song, right? The last song of the set before the one song encore, which was Suitcase Blues. And I knew I knew it would be emotional to see Magic Power. Magic Power is literally the first song I ever I ever loved. I ever knew, I ever sang, I ever wanted to hear on the radio, you know, and then just the idea of music and it having a magic power and believing that and music meaning so much in my life and um and you know everything with Paul and um and not being there with him 
and not being able to share that moment with him. It didn't feel right. You know, it just didn't feel right. And, um, and it was time and magic power came and the few first few chords on the guitar were played. And I definitely cried. I'm not ashamed to admit I was crying in my seat at the Riviera theater, thinking about my uncle missing him, thinking about kind of walking away from that relationship and, you know, questioning it. Should I do it? Should I call him tonight? Should I tell him? Let's just try to work it out. All those thoughts. And I don't know the answers, but I knew that I was sad. I was really sad. And, um, you know, I came home and Tammy asked how it was and I, I just couldn't. I was sad and I, I told her I was sad and I, I cried some more at home. Because I do miss my guy, but I miss the guy and I miss the relationship we had years ago. Not the one that we had just before this. Because that, that was fake and no good. And So I don't know that there's even anything really to go back to anyway. But, um, man, it, you know, saying goodbye to Rick, it, it kind of puts some things into perspective, I guess. You know, that things don't last forever. Life isn't going to last forever. Your favorite bands, singers, they don't last forever. And I always think of this this video, this performance of Pearl Jam's Light Years from Pink Pop. And uh, Eddie Vedder kind of says, if you got good friends, love them while they're here. You know, and it makes me feel like I'm making a mistake that someday Paul's not going to be here and I'm going to look back at this time and I'm going to say, what were you doing? Why didn't you call him? Why didn't you, why weren't you the bigger man? Why didn't you reach out? And, you know, but then there's that devil on the other shoulder saying, you're always the one and look at the way he was treating you and you're not wrong about this one. And, you know, I've had a lot of relationships in my life that have kind of come and gone and. You know, when it gets to a certain point, you really have to look at yourself in the mirror and say, you know, I got to be par- at least part of the problem. And I can acknowledge that I'm not I'm not perfect. I'm a flawed dude. You know, I can be really tough to be around. Sometimes I can be moody and, and, and grouchy and miserable. But the relationships that I've maintained, like the ones with my wife or the ones with my brothers or the ones that have stayed strong, it's with the people that accept that about me, you know, that are willing to say, like, no, he's not perfect, you know, but. He's our guy and, and we love him in in perfection or in his in his low times and you know. And I I just didn't get that from Paul, I guess. And um I don't know. I don't know if there's much else to say about it, but I'm gonna miss Rick Emmett. I'm really gonna miss him. I'm gonna miss going to see him. I'm gonna miss his music. You know, I'm going to miss all of that. I'm going to miss hearing Magic Power. I'm going to miss hearing Magic Power a lot because I I love Magic Power. And uh, no matter what, you know, I want to thank Paul for for showing me the Magic Power and instilling that in my heart, you know. It it fires me up, and it was great. And I want to thank Rick for all those years of music. Oh, my God, Rick, I met you. You're a fucking genius. Thank you for... You know, the 30 years plus of my life that I spent listening to your shit. The last 15 years or so going to your shows. It's been so awesome. All right, we're going to do one or two more of these in 2018, and that's going to be it for Season 8. Thanks for listening.
be mine.